0: Welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the goldenly young, frankly hip, and mirthfully lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis.
1: I've got a Christmas joke for everybody. Uh, Do you know what the the third wise man said uh, after the first two presented their gifts to Jesus?
2: No. What do you say?
1: But wait. There's myrrh. <laughs> <laughs> oh
2: wow. my God. Wow, wow, wow. Listeners, you can Ooh, use
1: that this holiday wow. season. And I, you, you don't even have to credit me. Just kidding. Tell them all that you heard it on <laughs> For your favorite all, podcast. all
2: the laughs you didn't get, from Ashley throughout this Jesuitical season this made up for that
1: my best. she
2: laughed really
0: hard at that.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's oh, usually man. reserved for squirrel memes. Yeah. Ashley laughed. <laughs> uh,
0: oh man, you guys, it's almost Christmas. I know. I'm so, so excited. excited.
1: Yeah, it's our last episode until the new year, but uh, we've got a great one to end on and just wait. Listeners, it's worth it.
0: <laughs> what are we drinking, Zach?
1: Oh, yes. So we are drinking uh Heaven's Door Double Barrel whiskey. And so this is uh made in conjunction with Bob Dylan. You may have seen that Bob Dylan was coming out with the whiskey. Uh we were having a chat about it on our our Slack channel here at work. That's our internal chat. And uh Father Ed Schmidt went out and located uh a bottle of this highly coveted whiskey. And so that's what we're drinking. So thank you, Father yeah, Schmidt.
0: Thank you. Father. Cheers. Cheers.
1: That's 50%.
0: Going out on a strong note. All right. Who are we talking to, Olga? This week, we're talking with Sister Helen Prejean.
2: She has been the face of the anti-death penalty movement for decades, and she is a member of the Congregation of St. Joseph. Um, And she's been accompanying inmates and lobbying for legal change in the U.S. and in the church for years.
1: Yeah, and she blew up on the national scene when she had a memoir called Dead Man Walking, and that was later adapted into an Oscar-winning film. And she was crucial to the Vatican's eventual decision to ban the death penalty outright in the Catechism. She was
0: also played by Susan Sarandon in that movie. Yes, pretty cool.
1: Yes, we have a great uh, a great she question about was... Susan Sarandon, <laughs> uh, so stay tuned. Yes,
0: yeah, so we asked her that, but we also talked to her about how she became an anti-death penalty activist, um, and how the fight against the death penalty has changed throughout the years as opinions have changed or not. Around this issue.
1: Yeah, a, a true American Catholic icon. And so we were really happy to be able to talk with her.
0: Yeah. But first, Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's first, Zach?
1: So, this is an update to a story that we brought to your attention uh, earlier in the season. Uh, last week, two Jesuit provinces released the names of more than 150 priests and other ministry leaders who were found to have credible allegations of sexual abuse. And these allegations date back to the
3: 1950s.
2: Yes, and these include two provinces, the Jesuit West, which covered 10 western states, and the Jesuits U.S. Central and Southern province, which covered 13 states, along with Puerto Rico and
0: the Central American country of Belize. Yes, yeah, so this is a big deal. This is a huge swath of the country. There are mm-hmm. still three Jesuit provinces provinces that are planning to release these names um, in the coming weeks. Um, but this is still a lot. Uh, most of the men on the list have already died. I think there's only four who are still living um, and none of them are in ministry anymore. Um, but this is an important development. We've talked a lot about the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, but that only covers dioceses, And so often left out of that conversation are religious orders which also have their own history of abuse, especially priests doing ministry with young people in, in schools. So no, Jesuits absolutely. have a lot of schools. Christian brothers have a lot of schools. So that's a, it's a big gap that I think it's important that is filled. Yeah.
1: And this does seem promising. Uh, that We've talked a lot about the need for transparency, um, and it was good to see the Jesuits, you know, sort of get together as uh, provinces and communicate about how they're going to make this a more transparent process.
0: And not wait until a state compels them to do mm-hmm. so. Exactly. Um. So this is a good
2: step, but this is not enough. And members of Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests are saying that this the order should also say exactly what these allegations wa- are and why they were deemed credible.
0: Yeah, and when they were deemed credible, because it's good to know which priests committed abuse, but it's also important to know when people higher up knew about that abuse and why it's taken them so long to go public with it.
1: Yeah, and those are certainly probably going to be very painful revelations if those ever do come out. But as they say, the truth will set you free.
0: What's next, Olga?
2: This next story is about a nun named Sister Susan Francois, who is with the Sisters of St. Joseph of Peace. And she's been getting a lot of media attention because she sends a prayer on Twitter to President Trump every single day. And she's been doing this for almost two years now.
1: Yeah. And uh, she said in an interview with The New York Times that she thought it was important and for consistency and for history to know that, uh, ordinary people didn't look away. And specifically, she said, I wanted it to be a record of history that a Catholic sister wanted to tweet a nonviolent prayer at the president. Um, and she said, when you pray for someone every day for more than a year, you start to build some sort of relationship with that person, even yeah. if it's one-sided.
0: I, I have to say, when I first read the headline, I was I was skeptical of this project. My you know, I think it'd be very easy in something like this for it to become kind of virtue signally. Um, and like there's something that like I find praying at someone could could
1: literally know. adding them. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that could be like problematic, like y- you know prayer should be done in charity so if you're using prayer to make a political statement about the president on a public platform like that could be done wrong but it seems i've i've you know looked at her twitter feed and sister susan um seems to be really like doing this in a sincere genuine way she prays like first in community um prays with the news and then you know sees what comes out of that and that's what she posts to twitter
1: yeah and i think uh i get the appeal of doing it on Twitter because as we talked to Sister Lathea last week, you know, doing something on Twitter holds you accountable to a certain extent. Um, it's just letting other people know that you're, you're doing this every day. Um, but I think you're right. There is something about the nature of the platform that I just find a little off. Like she could have definitely done this every day privately and then talked about what that experience did to her, right? Mm-hmm. There, there didn't necessarily have to be this Twitter record.
0: Yeah. But who knows? Historians in the future when they look back through the Twitter records we will probably learn something important from it. That's
1: true. God, I hope I don't want to be that grad student that has to comb through Twitter during the Trump years. Uh,
0: What's next, Ashley? uh, In other nun news, and, uh, you know, we love bringing you nun stories, and they're often very uplifting. This next story is proof that nuns are also humans who sin. Uh, Two nuns in Southern California have been accused of embezzling $500,000 $500,000 from a Catholic school where one was the principal and the other sister was, uh, was a teacher. Yes, um, and
1: it's alleged that they're using uh, at least some of this money to uh, go on trips and gamble at casinos. And the Sisters of St. Joseph of Carondelet, the which is the sister's order, um, they've arranged... To have full restitution of the funds and they're also going to impose appropriate penalties and sanctions on the sisters.
0: And the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, which initially said it wasn't going to press charges, has now said uh, it will pursue a criminal case uh, as the investigation deepened into this.
1: Yeah, like half a million dollars feels like it warrants more than like
0: a slap on the hand
2: or like yes. extra
1: dishes duty or something. That, in the that community. is a lot of
2: money. And this happened over how many years?
0: So the I think this investigation only goes back six years and they've been there for decades. So the sum could be even more. And, you know, it's easy to make light of the situation. Like it seems kind of like a plot of a movie, like two nuns stealing mm-hmm. money and going to casinos. But it can be really devastating for a Catholic school to lose that much money.
1: Yeah. You think about all the parents who are sacrificing so much to put their kids through Catholic school and for them to, you know, be faced with this fact that that money's been used or stolen um, has to be really devastating. And so embezzlement hurts any community when that something like that happens. And so um, our prayers are definitely with the school in Southern California.
0: Yep. What's next, Olga?
2: So this week, we've got some interreligious dialogue news for you. Um, pope Francis has announced that he will visit the United Arab Emirates next year, becoming the first pope to visit the Arabian Peninsula.
0: Yeah. So he's going to Abu Dhabi, which is the capital emirate of the UAE. You probably have seen pictures of its massive uh it's Tower, massive skyscrapers. Yeah, yeah skyscrapers. big buildings there. Um, and the Pope is going uh, to participate in a meeting on interfaith peace building.
1: And Pope Francis has made it a point of his papacy to lift up and champion uh, instances and voices of interreligious dialogue. And there was another instance of that when over the weekend he beatified 19 men and women religious who were martyred during the Algerian Civil War.
0: And this included the group of French fathers and brothers who were featured in the movie Of Gods and Men. So they were in Algeria in the 90s during the Civil War, providing health services to Muslims. Uh, And And Zach, you like this movie, right?
1: I love this movie. And I love this story because Mm -hmm. uh, these these Cistercian monks sort of were fit. They read the signs of the times they knew that the civil war was heating up violence against foreigners in particular was rising and they were faced with a choice to stay or leave and they were so in love with the people the Algerian people and the Muslim Algerian people that they were serving that they did not want to flee and so it's a beautiful example for the church to look to um and Over the weekend, Pope Francis said by beatifying our 19 brothers and sisters, the church wishes to bear witness to her desire to continue to work for dialogue, harmony and friendship. And so it was a nice way to tie together this announcement that he was going to Abu Dhabi. And if you're home for the break and you're looking for a good movie to watch with lots of time, a good one to rent is Of Gods and Men. It's truly a spectacular film. Do people rent films anymore? <laughs> not from like the store, <laughs> like stream. digitally, like stream not from it Blockbuster. From you can rent on.
0: I think it's iTunes, called
2: download YouTube. or stream. Well, no,
1: you. But all right, I, all, I right don't, all right, time to explain <laughs> the difference between.
2: And our last story, which Ashley will get into, is a Christmas story. We just kind of wanted to bring this and end
0: on a happy Christmas note before we leave you. Yes. So the Archdiocese of Detroit, recognizing the fact that a lot of people come to Mass on Christmas who maybe aren't regular Mass goers has a new campaign called Part of the Family, which is meant to make these um, once or twice a year Mass goers feel welcome.
1: Right, and so there are three parts to the campaign. Uh, first is uh, training and hospitality, uh, meaning like how to welcome people, yeah. <laughs> which might sound like you don't need trained for, but you really do. It's it
0: it something as simple as like moving to the middle of the pews so that people who are coming in like feel like they can sit down without crawling over
1: you. Yeah, and you know introduce yourself and all these things and so that was for regular mass goers they had these all over the the diocese that lots of people attended second part were these really beautifully shot videos um One, sort of announcing that, hey, like, we're having Mass. We'd love to have you here. And also uh, these testimonies of people, like, talking about their favorite Christmas traditions. Yeah,
0: and I love that they really focused on, like, the family aspect of it. It wasn't, like, hitting you over the head or making you feel guilty for not going to Mass every weekend. It was just like, hey, you're a part of this Catholic family, and we would be so excited to see you at Mass on Christmas. Right,
2: and that's one of the things that the Archdiocese Communication Director, Edmund Reyes, is saying he, you know— we're targeting people who might just be returning to church for the first time or who haven't been there in years. And we want to make them, like Ashley said, we want to make them feel like they're a part of a family, not like there's some stranger, you know, stepping into a space that's not welcoming.
1: Exactly. And the third part of the campaign is helping people find those spaces. Right. So they're like we have this shiny new website. It's called MassFinder.org. And it's basically like uh, it'll... Look at your location services. It'll say, like, find mass near me. Find Christmas can, mass near me. When you
0: find your mass, you can, like, press a button. It'll share it on social media so mm-hmm. all your friends know you're going to mask. And, like, this might seem like basic, basic stuff marketing for, <laughs> for millennials. Um, they're having paid ads on YouTube and Spotify and social media. But, like, that's not the usual modus operandi for parishes. So, right.
1: Normally, like... Prep for Christmas busyness is sort of like this announcement to in the bulletin to like where parking is going to be adjusted. And that's like it. Right. That's how we prepare for crowds.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So listeners, if you are going to be at mass on Christmas, make an effort to like say hello to a new face. Um, and Sit in the middle. Sit in the mm-hmm. middle. If you're the priest, don't make some snarky joke about like all the people whose news- the new faces you're seeing. Just tell them how happy you are that everyone is there.
1: Amen.
2: We're talking with Sister Helen Prejean. She is an anti-death penalty activist, a spiritual advisor to men and women on death row, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Dead Men Walking. Welcome to Jesuitical, Sister Helen.
1: Glad to be here. Yes, thank you so much. Yeah,
2: I feel like we've been super excited to talk to you and our listeners too. Your your name comes up often when we talk about potential guests.
3: Very good, I'm I'm glad to hear that. Cool.
2: All right. um, so you're known as a really important figure in conversations about the death penalty in both the United States and the church, and you first got involved by writing letters to a man who was on death row. How did that experience
0: change
3: you, Sister Helen? Well, it, it changed my whole life. You know, I like to talk about Sneaky Jesus. <laughs> sneaky Jesus? Um,
0: I like the sound of that.
3: Sneaky Jesus. I'm going to give you Sneaky Jesus Part right. 1 and 2. So All right. Sneaky Jesus Part 1. So I'm working in the St. Thomas housing... Uh, projects with the African-American community. And I come out of the Adult Learning Center one day, and a friend of mine from the Louisiana Prison Coalition is coming down the street, has a clipboard, has a project going on, and he meets me and he says, Hey, Sister Helen, you want to be a pen pal somebody on death row? And I said, Yeah, sure, I could do that. I was thinking to myself, I could write letters to somebody you know. I was an English major. I could write some nice letters, a few poems.
1: You, you weren't nervous I at think, all about writing to someone who was maybe convicted of murder?
3: No, it was only a letter. Yeah. I mean, what can happen with a letter, right? And It, it uh, could this, change your entire <laughs> life, maybe. It could be for once. And because we hadn't had an execution in Louisiana about 20 years, this is 1982 when this happened. And uh, so I think I can write letters back and forth to somebody, you know. And I was there to serve poor people. I know if you're on death row in Louisiana, you're poor. Nobody is ever, ever on death row. They get good lawyers, and they never go to death row. At any rate, so I write the man, the letter, his name's Patrick Sonier. And he writes back, and I'll write, and he writes. And then we come to Sneaky Jesus Part 2, And it is that he goes, well, look, I'm a Catholic, you're a nun, would you be my spiritual advisor? So I say, yeah, sure. And and, uh, I didn't know that when he was going to be executed, everybody was going to have to leave the death house except the spiritual advisor, who was going to be me. And then I would be with him, the only one who could be with him, to the end and walk with him. And actually, he would be looking at my face when this state of Louisiana killed him. So that's Nikki Jesus' part two. Here's the thing about grace. It doesn't come ahead of time, but it comes up under you when you need it at the time, and that's what I experienced.
1: And would you say you needed it then? You, you say that your new memoir is about—it's uh, River of Fire, and it's about how this nice, polite nun came to a new understanding of Christianity. Would you say that, Sister Helen, the nice, Who, polite you nun—
3: ever call me a nice, polite nun? You, that, was, the uh, that was you. <laughs> yeah.
0: Whoever that was wrote the Facebook. blurb on your book. I said
3: that. I said I was <laughs> nice and
1: polite. You, you were. You said you were. I think you you were implying that that changed, but— <laughs> Okay. So you, you, you needed that grace, yes? Well,
3: with the whole— being drawn to something is a, is a grace. Accepting an invitation is a grace.
0: So, so what, what, how would you describe your advocacy work um, beyond being a spiritual advisor to people on death row? What are, you, what are you trying to change about the system?
3: Okay, well, the spiritual advisor to someone on death row is for them. That's not changing a system. That's being there for them. That's the relationship with them and accompanying them. Um, and and it's a mutual sharing that happens. Um, but the advocacy is, you know, after Pat was executed, you know, you can't be present to something like that and watch a person be killed. I came out of the execution chamber and it was the middle of the night and I vomited and I threw up and And that's when advocacy began, because I couldn't remain neutral, I couldn't walk away from it, because I had seen it. I'd seen it close up, and along the way, I'd begun to learn why poor people are the ones who go to death row. I'd begun to learn the system. And so that, the advocacy then began. I got to get out there and begin to tell this story, to wake people up, so that we can end the death penalty. I mean being respectful to the life of the the six human beings I've accompanied the execution means that I have to work to end the death penalty. I can't just walk away from.
2: And Sister Helen, you, you wrote, we mentioned in the intro, you wrote Dead Man Walking, which was published 25 years ago, and then the film came out two years later. Um, how did the film change the, the nature of the, your advocacy work?
3: Tremendously. Tremendously. And we owe this Susan Saranda she read the book first then it took her nine months to persuade Tim Robbins before she could get him to read the book and then he then decided to do the film and the the gift of the film is there had it changed the way movies were done about the death penalty when Dead Man Walking came out plus it was. It got four nominations for the Academy Awards, and yeah. Susan got the Academy Award. So and really, she was, she
0: was playing you, right, Susan Sarandon? Right. Now, right. did you,
1: did you know who yeah. Susan Sarandon was before this, or
3: <laughs> you heard stories? <laughs> you heard stories. No, <clears throat> I don't know movie stars at all. See, and she called me that she was coming into New Orleans, and uh, would love to meet me, and that she had read my book, and so. The sisters and I, we rented Talma Louise, so you know I could see what she looked like because we would go meet him, and dress. <laughs> and I got her mixed up with Gene Davis. I mean, the whole movie. I'm looking at Gina Davis, and I'm thinking, well, I guess she could be me, but wow! <laughs> 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 oh, so then, when I met, him, and I was relieved. I'm going, oh, thank God, he's relieved.
0: How what how far has I mean how how have things changed since 1995? Have have has this anti-death penalty um, project made a lot of progress?
3: Uh, we are really making yeah progress in the country. I mean the death penalty in the 90s when the book came out was the, at the peak. I think there were like 98 executions uh, in in 1999. And uh, since then, there's been a number of factors, I believe, that have led prosecutors not to seek it, juries not to vote for it, and more and more states to repeal it. And uh, so now we're getting down to it. There's just a pocket of places in the United States where you have really rabid prosecutors or people avidly seeking the death penalty. Amnesty International always points out that when you're ending something, the first thing you do is look for it in practice, that people begin not to do it anymore. And the last thing you do then is end it on the books with the legislative assembly.
0: Are you hopeful that you'll see the abolition of the death penalty
3: in your lifetime? I am. I think we're on the way. I think we are. But you know how I feel, though? Like I'm with a man now on death row, Manuel Ortiz, he's from El Salvador, he's in Louisiana. And one person on death row is too much. The suffering and the torture of putting a human being in a small cell and they begin to count the days to their death and it's one day after the other. And it's just it's just unspeakable. And and it's that's what keeps that's the fire apart. Of in River of fire that I talk about, the fire part is seeing the suffering. And see, people are oblivious to it. People don't go into prisons. People don't go into death row. People don't talk to people who say, "Can say you oh, today is Tuesday, and by Saturday I'll be dead. They're going to kill me Friday night." And you know, for conscious, imaginative beings, that is mental torture. And because people are so far from it, they don't think about it. They don't recognize it as, as being against human rights. And so it, it's allowed to stay. So I got punched in as witness. So my job is very much to stay on the road, go out to talk to people, write books, talk to good folks like you, get it out on the airwaves, to just say, look at this, think about this. Do we have to be killing our own citizens and putting them in the system? One of the things that's changing the death penalty is that we realize now that we make so many mistakes. Right. There have been 164 people now who have gotten off a death row. Innocent people for sure have been executed because it's so broken. Do y'all have much awareness of that, of how the system's broken, how you could have an innocent person that goes to death row yeah
0: no we i see those stories all the time and it mm-hmm. it seems like that itself would be enough to convince people that like this is a permanent mistake that yeah you there's can't no way to take it
1: back from um, and especially yeah, and especially right. the way it affects communities of color and mm-hmm. uh communities of poverty as you mentioned sister helen it seems so i don't know clear to me that yeah. it's like disproportionately applied Sister, you mentioned that like it's so hard being with someone who knows they're going to die the next week. What is it how do you do that over and over and over again? How do you continue to, you know, be friends with these people, be advisors to these people and where do you find joy? I mean, you 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 strike me as a joyful person, so I've always found that really inspiring.
3: Well, first of all, you know, when you say you keep doing it over and over, and that's true. But each time that I take a person on death row, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to die. Like Manuel Ortiz, he he has a a really good federal habeas hearing coming up, and he has a decent judge, and he very well may not die. So it's this thing of accompanying a person and being present with them and upholding their dignity because you get so many signals in prison and then on death row that you're nothing but disposable human waste. You are so evil and terrible that we have to kill you in this society. And so it's a real precious thing to be with someone, and you meet them and you see God in them. You see the good in them, the divine spark in them. And they take you into their life, and they trust you. And it's, its uh, I don't know how to describe it completely, looking at it. It can look like just such a downward, terrible thing. But that's that mystery of grace in there, too, because grace comes out of that relationship. And they help me. They actually help me. And so, like, after the last visit with Manuel, uh, here in Louisiana, and I walk away, and I was lifted up. He helped lift me up. And he's he's been on death row 23 years. He's absolutely innocent, but at last we got him the good lawyers that he needed and the happiness of having a decent federal judge. Because, you know, you can have a federal judge. They're all supposed to read the same Constitution. But when their ideology is this hard pan ideology of basically they tend to believe the prosecutors anyway, and don't cut you any slack, don't don't show any kind of understanding of the law that can allow them to see the possibility of of your innocence. Mm-hmm. You know, people prejudge things all the time and right. court justices do that and the judges. So anyway, Monroe has a chance. He has a chance that he's going to walk out of there. And so he dwells in that hope that I dwell with
2: him. Sister Island, for me personally, one of the things that has, I felt challenged as a Catholic in, in my 20s especially, because I used to think that, you know, if someone's in on death row, then they did they committed a crime and they deserve to be there. But as my faith has evolved, you know, just being on this podcast, we've talked about in previous episodes um, that as Catholics were challenged to, you know, kind of go re- refute that way of thinking. Um, and one of the things that has helped was, you know, Pope Francis. He's been very vocal on this issue. And earlier this year, he declared that the death penalty was inadmissible in all cases, which was a major change in, t- in church teaching. What was it like for you to hear that news?
3: Well, you know what? I've been working on getting that good news for about 30 years. In the second book I wrote, called The Death of Innocence, it talks about my direct uh, dialogue that I got to have with Pope John Paul, who really paved the way for this, for Pope Francis to do this. And so it's through uh, the story of a man, Joseph O'Dell in Virginia. I got involved with this case, as spiritual advisor. The Pope heard of his case. It ended up they buried him in Italy after he was executed. And we went to Rome, and I got a, a, to write a letter to Pope John Paul ahead of the meeting with him around the man Joseph Adell. And I said to him, I said, Your Holiness, the Catechism, whenever it talks about dignity of life, it always says innocent life. Well, when I'm walking with a man to execution— and he shackled hand and foot, and he's surrounded by six guards. And he turns to me and he says, Sister, please pray God holds up my legs while I make this walk. Where is the dignity in killing an absolutely defenseless man? Where's the dignity? Can you help the church? And Pope John Paul did when he came to St. Louis. For the first time, he was the first pope to put the death penalty in with the other pro-life issues. And he said no to abortion, no to euthanasia, no to physician-assisted suicide, and no to the death penalty, which is cruel and unnecessary. Even those among us who have done a terrible crime have a dignity that must not be taken from them. And Pope Francis, if you notice in his statement, he built on what the different popes had said. And see, the way the Church, the way we evolve and change morally, we did the same thing with slavery. The Church mm-hmm. used to uphold slavery. And then we reach a point where we there's a turning, and that just happened with the death penalty. It took 1,600 years for Pope Francis to say, no exceptions, because in all the other documents of the church about the death penalty, it allowed for exceptions. It said in, in really terrible crimes, in cases of absolute necessity, and of any prosecutor who wanted to go for the death penalty was quoting that. And so there were loopholes. So now, no exceptions. Changed it in the catechism.
1: Yeah, it's written. And we
3: got to get those words off the page, into the hearts and minds of the people. And that's done through conversations like this and prayer and sharing our faith and learning about things so that we can make the social change.
0: And Sister Helen, you've been so instrumental in that change, and, and we're really honored and grateful to have spoken with you and to have us on the show and so that our listeners can learn more about what you've done um, but we, we have one final question that we ask all of our guests. Um,
2: if you can canonize anyone, living or dead, Catholic or not, who would it be and why, Sister Helen?
3: Well, uh, canonize, you, uh, I don't know how to answer this, because, you know, the uh, people of God, the saints are everywhere, and I have a little trouble singling out some people. Uh, I, anybody who practices compassion and love, the little saints. Can you do canonize with a little c? Oh, uh,
1: well, we've we had someone. We've had people canonize fictional characters. So there. I mean, maybe is there <laughs> someone? Is there someone you, that a lot of people don't know about that you would want everyone yeah. to know about?
3: Well, actually, every one of the six people I've accompanied to executions, I would canonize. And I would canonize Lloyd LeBlanc, the father of David, the young guy who was killed by Pat and his brother, who made his way to forgiveness. I would definitely canonize him.
1: All right. Thank you so much for the work that you've done to, yeah, to look, save lives. Uh,
3: great, great job. Wonderful talking to you. Thank you, you Sister <laughs> Helen. <laughs> okay, keep up the good work. Look out for sneaky Jesus.
1: <laughs> we, we will watch out for sneaky Jesus. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you, Sister Helen. Okay. All right, bye bye. Bye bye.
0: All right, now it's time for some housekeeping. First, this is our last episode before the new year, but we'll be back in January.
1: And also in January, we are. Going to Australia. We are super psyched to be part of their World Youth Day celebrations. We're uh, going to be... I can't
0: believe you didn't sing The Land
1: Out Under right now.
0: I know. <laughs> I'm
2: surprised. I no, so I restraint. thought about
1: it, but I didn't want to like... <laughs> offend everyone before we get there um but we're super psyched to be part of the world youth day celebrations in the archdiocese of adelaide so this is uh the weekend of january uh 25th to the 27th and we're going to be uh doing some podcast master classes we're going to be leading some pilgrimages and we're going to do a live show so mm-hmm. uh if you're in australia we'll see you there and if not you'll hear about it later And our one thing this week
0: Is a huge thank you to everyone who has supported Jesuitical this year, Um, like everyone who has supported Mm -hmm. it in every way, whether that's on Patreon or contributing to discussions on Facebook or giving us adverbs or telling your friends about Jesuitical. We are so grateful for all that you do to make this podcast possible.
2: Yeah, and thank you so much. You guys have been a part of our community. We don't always meet you guys, but it's great to share. We love when you share your consolations and desolations, your emails, your tweets, so thank you. And we look forward to continuing this in
0: the new year. Yeah. All right, now it's time for consolations and desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Olga?
2: I've got a consolation this week. So uh, the church that Enoch and I go to had a... Christmas pageant this past weekend featuring who's Enoch <laughs> just a guy that I go to church with no big deal uh, <laughs> my fiance and I the yeah. church that we go to They featured. They had a Christmas pageant this weekend, this past weekend, and they featured instead of the pastor sharing the the sermon, it was just these little kids like acting out scenes from the Bible. Um, And it was as precious as and as unorganized as you can imagine trying (laughs) to lead a bunch of like twelve year olds and five year olds and six year olds. They were so adorable. They were. Some of them were singing. Some of them were dancing. They were completely unorganized. And I know it's nerve wracking for parents who. Have to because there were a lot of parents watching their kids. But for me, I was just completely moved by how uninhibited children are when they're sharing um, in faithful spaces. Um, and it just really reminded me, and it just really grounded me, and it reminded me that you know Jesus asked us to be like little kids. Um, and that was just really consoling
1: to
0: just be a part of that, and super
1: adorable. So that's
0: great. I haven't seen a good a good nativity play
1: in a while. Friday or Friday there's one at our parish. Oh. So.
0: Excellent. There you go. (laughs) I got you covered. Nice.
1: Yeah. What do you got, Ashley?
0: Uh, I have a desolation this week. Uh, Don't want this to come off wrong, but I was at my best friend's bachelorette party in Cabo, Mexico, which, you know, overall was a really, really wonderful trip, so I just want to say that. But um, the other bridesmaids were wonderful but also just like drop dead gorgeous and fun and perfect and i just found myself comparing myself to them the entire weekend and it made it really hard uh to be present um so it was like the desolation was one this voice telling me like you're less than them you're not as good as them like they're closer with your old best friend because they went to college with her and they're pretty and whatever and like that i know that's the evil spirit so it takes me out of like my own head or just puts me in this terrible headspace but it also like makes it harder to be in relationship with them like it's not their fault that they're gorgeous and I can't hold that against them. And so it was this instead of like just, you know, trying to be friends with them, I was seeing them as like these perfect people who couldn't possibly have their own insecurities or problems or things to offer me or things that I could offer them. Um, and so anything I think that like takes you out of possible relationships and makes you feel disconnected Um is is desolating. So, I was I was upset. Even like I was on the trip and I was like, well, no, my desolation is going to be this week. <laughs> oh, like no. I could but I still couldn't like pull yeah. myself out of it. Um, so that was I was a little desolating.
2: I'm sorry you ha- you were feeling that. I know as women that is something that we deal with like we just compare ourselves to other women and it's hard to pull yourself out of that. But yeah. I think you being vulnerable and sharing that with us, um it would have been so much easier to just continue falling yeah. down that rabbit hole. Also, yeah. you're great. So,
0: I- Thanks, Olga. What do you have, Zach?
1: This week, I have a consolation. I'll start by saying there's nothing like this uh, overwhelming feeling of, like, it's Tuesday, we're recording, and you're like, what is going to be my—you knew what your destination <laughs> yeah. was, but then all of a sudden, there are some weeks where you're like, where were you, God? I have like I don't know. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I was actually talking to my fiance about this, and she— pointed like just was straight up like oh it was here like you were, remember how you were feeling during this um and this is we were talking about our uh our guest list and our bridal parties for the wedding and i have i've been stressing about this for a long time because i'm sort of bringing uh i sort of want like 20 groomsmen <laughs> and so and i've got Very too many on people brain. yeah and so okay. Uh, that's, uh, that's too many for, uh, but log- just straight up logistical purposes. And so I've been stressing about like cuts I've had to made in this thing and the other. And I was talking to a man about it today and she was like, like, it's obviously, a, you might be stressed about this, but you have so many people that love you and like, that should be the overwhelming feeling of like coming out of this and that's what should be coming here. And so. It might have been. I it might have been a desolation, but like being able to talk to someone about what I was feeling and have someone say, "God was right there next to you, and you were you were you missed it totally." But looking back on that is the consolation. So yeah.
0: that's great. So yeah. who made the cut? <laughs>
1: <laughs> to be determined. Let them know
0: right now. It's just <laughs>
1: yeah. Hey guys, listen to my podcast, or else you won't find out. <laughs> All right, get us out of here.
0: Jesuitical is brought to you by America Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Adverbs provided by Kieran Freeman. Jesuit Formation provided by Eric Sundrup, SJ. Engineering also by Kieran Freeman. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Shout out this week to Small Church Community. And send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at americamedia.org. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We will see you next year.